Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1997, St. Louis ska band ME330 released Crab Rangoon, one of the best ska records of the era, mixing alt-rock, Weezer guitar licks, ska, and hard-on-the-sleeve breakup lyrics. Despite ska being a mainstream genre that year, Crab Rangoon only reached a cult audience. This was ME330's third record, but the first with guitarist Dan Pothast, our guest today, taking the reins as the group's lead singer. After Crab Rangoon, ME330 released two more excellent and underappreciated records. And after that, Dan continued touring, releasing solo projects, and starting new bands. He's like the Energizer Bunny of Ska. These days, Dan even plays in Jeff Rosenstock's band. What a gig. Well, there's a lot of territory to cover in his career. So in this episode, we attempt to scratch the surface of it. I can't imagine a world... Playing this type of music, ska punk, without Dan Pothast in it. Yeah, I mean, he's just a fixture in this scene. I think bands that I've probably seen the most playing ska punk, ME330 and RX Bandits, for sure. ME330 is definitely up there for me, too. I think that they're, they're still great. You know, last time I saw them was probably a couple of years ago, and great show. Yeah, you had Dan at one of your uh, book events, and it was my first reintroduction into the world of live music, getting to see him play at that set. Yeah. Same with me and perfect, perfect way to get to experience live music after a year and a half for the first time was to see Dan do it. Definitely. I want to get into Ska Dream first. I would love to hear from your point of view, like what your role and contribution was to Ska Dream. Sure. We basically, we had a Zoom meeting and talked about like, just I'll talk through each, each of the songs and like, okay, what are we going to do with this one? What What is the feel going to be? What's this going to sound like? And like, we are all, all just kind of spitballing ideas and stuff. But then like the real kind of work became like when uh, we kind of got a basic framework for that. And then Jeff, from, the work for me started when Jeff, uh, he sent those to Kevin and got him to to record basic drum tracks at his house just to get the feel. Um, and he's 
or no, I have that wrong. <laughs> Jeff recorded like fake drum demos and he sent those out to us with, you know, basic framework of like a guitar part and drums. And um, I think there was maybe some bass, like basic bass lines on there. Um, but then I just listened to them a bunch and tried to like arrange them in a cool, what I thought would be cool, you know, like um, tried to pick some of the hooks from the, from no dream. And then like, like incorporate horn lines. So I was writing like, you know, just with a keyboard writing horn lines and, uh, and like, I, I wrote a decent amount of like new parts for Scow Dream, like that don't exist on No Dream. Um, intentionally trying to make it uh, different and and good. Um, so I, I did a lot of that, a lot of arranging, and then just had some different ideas on feels and things for, for different songs and different parts. And really, of all the Jeff albums that I've been involved in, this one by far I had the most kind of input on. Yeah, because doesn't Jeff normally basically demo the songs and say here's the songs i mean it isn't usually so open source is it no yeah well that's exactly it yeah jeff will when he writes a song he hears every bit of it as he's writing it like it's arranged and done in his brain like as he's writing it's it's wild i don't know anyone who else else who writes like that it's it's incredible um so he will demo, he'll, he'll send out to the band these really uh, detailed demos, like where the parts are there, like the drum feels are figured out, the, the bass parts are for the most part there. Um, and he plays everything too. So like when we go on tour and for the first couple of records, like basically I'm, I'm just his like extra hands in the band, you know, the things he can't play and sing at the same time. So there's all these uh yeah he so on the demos he'll record all the like the synth parts organ parts like saxophone stuff all the stuff that i wind up playing live he would have on the demos and then like um and a lot of times he would just play that stuff in the studio as well because it was just faster for him because he already knows it and he's really good at those instruments so the first couple albums i was in the band I was kind of I sang a little bit on the records, but he was just recording his stuff like he normally does. And I would go on tour and play those extra parts. Yeah, which is is fun and was really and still is like pretty challenging for me because uh, they're not parts that I wrote, you know, and keyboards and synths are not my uh, main instrument. I have to practice a lot for these tours and for the, for the <laughs> records now, like, like it's, it's funny. I've never uh, practiced as much for any band I've ever been in, <laughs> but I love it. It's great. Give us a song or two uh, on Scott dream that had a healthy amount of Dan input on the structure or the songwriting new parts or something. Sure. Um, let's see. I think, well, <laughs> do I admit that, uh, like leaving in the sky, that part we bit from uh, nightclub that was that was totally my idea. That's great. It's a great part. <laughs> yeah, that's such, um, such a great Easter egg. It, well, it's just like those first two chords. I was just like, oh, these two major chords step apart, going back and forth. It's like it's Scott. It's that it's about that tempo. I was like, oh man, 
I just hear nightclub. <laughs> it's got it's got to happen. I love that part for two reasons. First reason is it's all Jeremy, right? All those all those horns. Well, yeah, and Jeff too. I think Jeff played the saxophones on there. It yeah. sounds like a thousand horns, which I love. It just sounds so thick. So I love that part about it. And then secondly, I love that it starts out with nightclub and then it goes up right at the end. I, I love that like so good yeah and i think that's jeff because he was just like ah, i just don't want to do the you know just nightclub let's let's work that line in but then it shifts into a melody that's unique to the song you know yeah yeah that's great so i think he did, yeah he did a cool thing there i'm trying to think what else uh i think scram there's horns at the end of that that i kind of arranged and sent music over for them to uh to kind of duplicate yeah I, I don't know i think uh i think those two can't remember now off the top of my head which which ones but uh what other ones but here's something that jeff told me i want to i want to get you take yeah so jeff said essentially that he would start to go down the road of ascent what would be like scott cliches and you would you were like sort of quality control to be like let's not Let's not make it cliche. Let's, you know, let's let's still make it crazy. Let's let's I think maybe what he was referring to, um, like there's a part in I think it's in Scram where it's like, oh this is whoa, oh, oh, where it's like the the breakdown part is like you know, it's like a heavy breakdown part. Yeah. And like the like the tendency may be to like, oh, it's not heavy, like we're doing a ska thing, you know, but like I don't know, looking back to like all the ska and punk that we were into and that we were writing and doing at the time, like it had those heavy breakdowns and things like that in them. So like, I just didn't want the songs to be too like, yeah, like watered down and cliche, just like, oh, this is the ska by numbers version of what you would imagine it to be. It's like if a song had a heavy breakdown or something or hook in there that was good, let it be, you know, let the, let the song be and then incorporate Scott parts in there. And that's fine. You know, that's, that's probably more what we were into anyway, as we were when we were kids, you know, of all the Jeff solo albums, it's the most crazy for sure. Scott dream. It's like almost Mr. Bungley at times, like where it's just changing like every two lines. Uh huh. Yeah. Like yeah. whether it's like a dramatic change or just like, okay, well now we just go half time for two lines. And then now it's like a, you know, double time metal core. And then, you know, it's just like constantly changing. Sure. And I don't feel like that. I mean, like bomb the music industry did do that, but I don't feel, I feel like Jeff solo really pulled away from that. And I felt like it ends up being just super chaotic. In fact, like, my my wife Amy like doesn't not like ska, and I made her listen to Ska Dream. I was like, "Gotta check this album," <laughs> and she's like, "All right." And so we were on a drive. She listened to it, and she's like, "I really like this album." <laughs> like, nice, wow, <laughs> good. So I think it's because it was so like Mr. Bungle esque that ah, I think that's okay. what she liked about it, right? Yeah, I I guess. Um... Yeah, I I don't know. I've I've listened to that record so many times, like both working on it and now like trying to learn all the parts that I didn't play on the record <laughs> that <laughs> that uh I I guess it doesn't seem that chaotic to me because it's just so burned in my brain. So <laughs> but I but I could see what you're saying that like that there's shifts, 
you know that we uh i think because we're just we're doing an album for the sheer joy of it you know for the sheer joy of just like th- this is funny and fun and let's like is this idea at times like, is it funny? Yes, let's do it. And, but like, let's do it good. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's definitely shifts like that, that maybe we wouldn't put in, you know, every record, but uh, they're there. They're there in Scott dream. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's definitely a difference between writing songs and rearranging existing songs. So it's a different muscle. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. For sure. So you mentioned this a little bit at this before, but uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more on like what it's been like for you to join Jeff Rosenstock's band. Like specifically, the question is like you've played music your whole life, right? Yeah. You were in a band that was super good, but was like kind of more of a cult band. ME three thirty. I'm talking about. Sure, sure. And then you've played like acoustic solo and all these side projects for like a number of years, and then as of an adult who's experienced in music, you suddenly join this band that's got a rapid like fan base, draws pretty big crowds, critics, right, about this band, right? You didn't, you joined this band in your 40s, so, right? So, yeah. So all that shit is weird to me. Like, it's weird <laughs> that people give a shit about uh, a band that I'm in. Like, that, that is strange and it probably always will be strange <laughs> to me, to be honest. But, what feels absolutely like right and comfortable and perfect about and why I love being in this band is that, well, for a few reasons, like one is just the people, the people are all just such sweethearts. I love all of them like family. Um, that's the biggest thing. They're just like, that's, that's who you want to be hanging out with anyway. So like, I just feel lucky to be on tour with that, the, the people in the band and the people in the crew. Um, so so there's that but the other thing too that is rad is i feel like jeff and like like bomb music industry and uh his solo stuff and like everything i feel like it comes from the same like like branch of the rock and roll tree as mu330 as as all the stuff i've played in like growing up um meaning like he gets after a live show with the same kind of like intensity and energy that I always wanted to channel and wanted to uh, have happen at an MU three thirty show, um, where it's it's like you want to go hard and have fun, like that the point is like having a good time and being good, but have a good time mostly. You know, like I don't know. It's I feel really really fortunate to have like kind of stepped into into it at the time that it was you know that where people were caring about the band it's uh it's rad for sure i mean you guys a lot of the shows that you guys announced sold out immediately and some of the shows were upgraded to bigger rooms i mean that must be so i mean i feel like he kind of like he got bigger even right even during the pandemic he got bigger i it seems like it i guess but like I don't, it's so weird to have put out, we put out two records, you know, and he's put out even another, that 2020 dump thing, like, so kind of three records, but like, there's been zero touring. So like, I don't know, my whole life, it's like, you put out a record, you go on tour, you kind of see, see what happens, you know, but like this stretch of 
pandemic where there's no shows, you're just like, who knows? Who knows what's, you know? And like, I guess, you know, you see, I see people buying tickets and stuff or shows selling out, but like, I don't know. I just (laughs) kind of, I just, I'll almost like believe it when I see it when I'm there and there's, if there's actual, actually a tour and actually a show, (laughs) you know, we haven't played any shows yet. And like, I just don't like, do, do any of us like really know what it's going to feel like in November to have a thousand people in a room, you know, is that going to be like totally okay? Is that going to be, you know, I'm still like, this all sounds great. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like I've watched, you know, like before the, like as we entered the pandemic, I watched tours like get canceled and pushed back and pushed back some more, you know. So uh, I don't know. Like everything seems like, well, most things seem like they're going pretty good, but like I'll believe it when I'm, you know, walk out on stage and we start playing. The Rosenstock band, Death Rosenstock, released a three disc live album. Yeah. Was that 2019? I can't even remember. Time seems weird now, but yeah, I think it was 18 or night. I can't remember either. Somebody shouts out KKK Highway. So what happened? Oh, okay. But that's so funny. Yeah. Was that just completely unexpected or were you guys kind of absolutely unexpected? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's that was wild. Um, And that's also what I mean, like, uh, where I still back going back to what I said, like we're kind of from the same branch on the tree that like, if there's a moment of like chaos or uncertainty that can happen on stage, like Jeff will allow it to happen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah, okay. Let's invite the curveball on stage to see what happens. Um, so yeah, someone we got to like, there was always incorporated in the set. There was a section where people would shout out songs and we'd allow for some requests and we'd, kind of pick ones that that we heard and like okay we'll give that one a shot you know um but somebody was yelling for kkk highway an me330 song and jeff was like i think we could play that it was just funny (laughs) because i was like oh okay so then i we had to like move people around on instruments because kevin was not familiar with the the me330 stuff our drummer so john was like i know that on drums i'll play it so John, the bass player, moved to drums, and then I played guitar, and then Jeff played bass. We just kind of rotated and switched. And I think um, Mike, Mike Huguenor, I think he just picked up my saxophone and acted like he was playing sax. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, and we had, yeah, we had never played it before, but it's like three chords. It's a pretty, pretty simple song. And they, and John and Jeff are pretty familiar. With the MU catalog, I think they've listened to those records a lot enough that they could just uh, fake their way through probably a couple records <laughs> if we had to, um, or at least a few songs. And uh, and anyway, we, yeah, we just counted it in and played it, and it wound up on the live record, which I think is hilarious. It's incredible. You couldn't put covers on that for royalty reasons, but since you own the royalties of that song. Yeah, that's not a cover. <laughs> I wrote that yeah the lyrics are pretty self-explanatory you know but i would i would love to hear the backstory of like why you wrote the song and and kind of where it came from back in what 2002 
Did you write it at the same time that it was recorded? Um, well, that would have been recorded like I think in 2001, actually. Oh, was it 2001? Okay, yeah, Ultra Panic, yeah, yeah, or and probably written in 2000 or even 99. Um, so yeah, I guess like I'll just be kind of reciting some of the lyrics here to explain what it's about, but but yeah, I guess around then the KKK adopted a section of highway that was on uh, Interstate 55 near my mom's house. And for a minute, uh, they actually had a sign up that said this section of highway adopted by the KKK. And uh, I remember watching like the nightly news at my parents and just like they were covering it. And uh, they showed an image of the sign that had been knocked down and it was laying on the side of the road and the newscaster actually said like uh today you know someone on highway 55 knocked down the the kkk sign uh highway workers were able to you know replace the sign quickly and they, they said uh we have information that says that if the sign were to have been stolen it would take weeks, possibly months to replace. <laughs> so, so he's basically like cueing someone to like, go steal this sign. Like, like just take it away, you know? And they did. And then that was kind of the last I'd ever heard about that, except for the song. So anyway, I thought that was a, a pretty good, uh, good move on the newscasters part. On one hand, it's not weird because all this stuff lives on, but or was it weird for you? Um, you know, that in Missouri, that that they would be so bold as to adopt a section of the highway and put the sign up. Yeah, it was definitely weird. And like, and that was, that's part of the point of like, just writing the song and just saying, like, to emphasize, like, yeah, that's weird. Like, that's not okay. Like, that's not cool. And uh, it shouldn't happen. You know, it's odd that as time goes on, like things like that seem less weird. You know, that like people have a harder time seemingly uh, speaking up about that sort of thing. I think it's the um, back then, especially in the 90s, the, those sorts of groups weren't bold. Yeah, they did what they did in in the quiet, you know, in the back background. But now it's like those groups have gotten bold and they've gotten like like they want to be loud. They want everyone to like get angry at them. Well, they've had they've had a lot of. uh bolstering from the the most powerful in the land you know yep yep yeah so yeah it's just it's it's weird it's 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 one of those things like your song and like listening to you know skank pickle talk about david duke running for president some of this stuff is just yeah weird to listen to now to see the direction that things went and, and remembering what those songs felt like at the time you know like the audacity of david duke running for president and how it was just pissed us all off you know and now it's like there's a whole team that's into that and and they're really loud yeah yeah and like i i think even at the time though like writing those songs like there there was some like backlash in a way where it was more like like why why are you focusing on that like that's not really a problem you know like why are you why are you putting together like a like a scout against racism tour like that that's racism really isn't a problem 
you know like it was more just like why can't you why aren't you just playing shows and having fun you know like why why do they have to bring up these things you know <laughs> it's which is wild like everybody should be talking about it talking about those things you know maybe maybe things wouldn't blossom into our uh our current uh state of affairs you know had more people talked about it and brought it up so do, let's let's go back let's go back to how right. mc30 started let's get that on the record whoa come on go going way back yeah i don't know i guess uh well ted the drummer of me 330 and i have been friends since kindergarten uh we've been buddies all through grade school except for a brief spat where we fought we were mortal enemies in like third grade for a minute what did you fight over in third grade uh well i was a bully i was, <laughs> I was a jerk a third grade jerk you were a bully were you bullying random kids no just ted just <laughs> i'm gonna blame it on my older brothers i think i had two older brothers that uh picked on me a bit and I just, it had to go somewhere. Sorry, Ted. Um, but yeah, we worked past that. And yeah, he got, um, gosh, how much, how much do I talk about other people's lives in this <laughs> As much as you podcast. need to, to tell the story. Okay, I'll tell the story. So Ted, at some point, uh, we went to a Catholic grade school together. And Ted, at some point, uh, I don't know if he just left or he got asked to leave uh, this grade school for whatever reason, but he went to a, a, a different school that had uh, a drum kit in at the school where you could pound your frustrations out. And uh, that's, that's how Ted got introduced to the drums. And I had already been playing guitar and we started getting together in grade school and playing uh, trying to play songs together, and that and that was the start, really, of MU330. Ted and I were there bands that were you and Ted together that were not MU330. Um, <laughs> we played with, we jammed with a bass player for a minute, and but no, we didn't have like a a band. We never played any shows or anything. But uh, as soon as we started high school, he went to one high school. I didn't went to another. Um, and that were kind of like rivals, rival schools. But it was great because um, we met a bunch of different people. Like I met Chris Diebold in uh, band class. And I met John Cavanaugh. And then Matt Struckle. He was the original keyboard player in ME330. And then Ted at his high school met Matt Nobby, the original sax player in ME330. So we kind of drew people from both uh, both high schools. And got it going. Were there any other names you guys threw at or around besides MT30? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Do we get to hear any of them? I, I think <laughs> the one that I remember, and I don't know if this was just in my head or if this was one that got talked about with Ted at all, but we, I remember wanting to call the band the Leech Muffins. And that never happened. Wow. Leech, leech, <laughs> like, you know, like sucking your blood, leech. Yeah. And I, I remember there being a drawing of like a muffin with a bunch of leeches on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was that. That's so 90, or I, I guess that was 80s, but yeah, I just remember there was a period where it was like, let's put two words together and 
just two words that don't go together and that's that's a band like i know there was a period where that was just how people named bands for sure but yeah that we we started uh playing in high school and we mainly because we we were really just learning how to play our instruments man we just we mainly played just like covers and stuff but even from the from the start we were trying to write originals uh <laughs> funny funny originals yeah oh yeah <laughs> as, as was there a whole series of originals that never made it to see the light of day yeah well there's a whole album's worth of stuff that actually got released on cassette only that has never made the jump to digital format as far as i know so like a pre-press album pre-press album there's an album called salamander stew mu330 salamander stew i never knew about salamander stew but i was just doing a little researching before the podcast and i saw that listed on discogs oh, oh is that in your notes no that's not in my notes uh, <laughs> i haven't listened to it but i saw it on discogs and i was like what how did i not know about a pre-press album the, yeah full-length album of uh crazy you know songs written by high schoolers yep any of the songs hold up um there's a couple that i think kind of hold up or that like hinted at like where we were gonna go mm -hmm. with our sound mike park actually just recently posted a video like a couple months ago i think of for one of the songs on on that and i couldn't believe he posted it i was like oh my god <laughs> i guess that's out there now <laughs> but it's funny because we were all tiny tiny kids oh that was the public access one right no no that that was a different one okay uh this is one it's like we shot it ourselves or ted's dad maybe filmed it but it's it's us like playing in in the basement and like doing wacky things in the park <laughs> <laughs> and wearing funny tie-dye shirts yeah it's it's uh it's something else was it ska uh, that song was, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, that fun like keyboard line to it, and trumpet sax. Yeah. Did you guys have any funk rock songs? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh man, yeah. People don't talk about funk rock from that period. <laughs> like, if there's really a maligned genre, it's that. Well, yeah. Well, Skanky Pickle, Skanky Pickle put it in. You know, they put the funk in the name of one of their records. So, like. Yeah, it it was real, you know, er, early nineties. You like it was very, very real. Like everyone wanted to play, and then like Fishbone was a huge influence, and they were funky as could be. Right? Yeah, you know, they could play it though. That's the thing. Got that feeling. <laughs> um, so we were trying to do all that stuff, and like. Thank God Chris Diebold was bad at slapping and popping on the bass. <laughs> like, seriously, we were because we were doing funk and we we're we we're trying to play ska stuff, too. And he could do these like really fast, like blistering fast, like ska arpeggios on the bass guitar. And we're like, oh, that sounds good. And then like everything gets the rhythm gets all weird when he just try to like pop it, you know, um, so we. we so we kind of just stopped doing the funk. I think a lot because of that. So so that was that was helpful in us kind of figuring it out, you know. Just luckily he didn't uh spend too much time trying to play Bonin' in the Boneyard on bass. <laughs> <laughs> he just like he's like, Oh, I'm better at this other stuff. 
you got you guys are very lucky that by the time you recorded press you had you were you were past your funk phase <laughs> indeed yeah and it was it was like that first record came out on cassette and i think it was just like uh, like cds were just like beyond our reach at that time you know so we the, it didn't come out in a digital format it only our first album only came out on cassette so yeah lucky because <laughs> like, part- like i can't this is not a request but i can't, i kind of can't believe that someone out there has not digitized it <laughs> and just like sent it out to the world um yeah I, I suppose that could happen at some time but uh i'm actually totally fine with it not being in the world the legend of the band name is that you guys were in a music class together was it high school or college yeah, it was it was high school. It was our freshman year in high school. So who exactly was in this class? It wasn't the it wasn't all the members of the band, right? No, because like I was saying, Ted went to a different high school. But it was uh, me, Chris Diebold, the original and still bass player of the band. Um, this guy uh, John Scavanaugh, mm-hmm. uh, who played trumpet in that band, and turned out to be our lead singer yeah okay. um and then matt struckle who was the original keyboard player of mu330 who left the band before we ever recorded press our you know first al- album that people know about so yeah so four of us met in that class i see and then uh at what point did you guys say this is our band name and, you know look did you guys look up at the door and have a moment or something <laughs> like how did that happen <laughs> um that's a good question i don't know man um i think mm, i don't know it was early on it would have been our freshman year it would have been early because we i think we played that year we played a show our first show at Ted's cousin's house and we needed a, a name fast. Um, so we went with that. I see. But yeah, I don't I don't remember some moment of yeah, like looking up at the wall or like <laughs> looking at my report card and like, oh, C minus and M U three thirty. Um that's that's what we should be called. <laughs> um don't know. Okay, so where does Rob come into the picture? Oh, the Rob, the Rob Bell origin story. Are you ever going to have Rob on the show? We, we're going to have all of MEC Tenority on here eventually. <laughs> well, I want all of you at once. Nice. The Rob Bell origin story is so beautiful and so great. I will tell my version of what I what I know of it. So um, we met Rob. We were playing at this place called the Red Sea in St. Louis. And we went through a phase of like, when we were in like early college where we would just, we would play every gig that we possibly could. And it didn't matter where, or like we just wanted to play. We knew that the more we played, the better we'd get. And like, I always feel like a show is worth like 10 to 12 practices. So let's just play. So there was this, it's, it was like this weird, was it Ethiopian restaurant? I think that like at night they had music. It, and we would play there like multiple Tuesdays, like out of the month, like a ridiculous amount. Uh, and no one would come and no one would be there on a weeknight. But um, we would just play it just to be playing shows and then uh, and try to get better. But 
one night this guy comes in to like see us play and he's got this just he's just dressed like the ultimate rude boy he's just got like <laughs> shark skin suit like the sharpest hat you've ever seen like super clean cut um just looks so sharp and we're like oh my god who is this guy and then uh like he had like skinhead tattooed uh, tattooed across his knuckles and uh <laughs> we just started talking to this this kid who was and uh it was Rob Bell and he was like it's like yeah I'm I'm learning to play trombone he's like you guys looking for a trombone player and I was immediately like yes <laughs> yes we are you you look like an amazing person and I want to hang out so anyway like we get to know Rob a little better and like he had just moved at that point. I think he had just moved back to St. Louis from Atlanta. Okay. So, so Rob, when I think when he was in high school, some sometime early on in high school, he met some people in the university city loop and just split town, just met some random people and moved to Atlanta. I think he, I think he didn't, I don't know if he told his parents. I think he just split um, <laughs> and wound up living in Atlanta for like a couple years with this, like, I don't know, the stories I've gotten out of him are really scattered. But like, um, I remember him talking about like living in an apartment with like a load of people. Um, he worked like on high-rise buildings like putting marble like marble slabs i don't know how like a high school kid got a job you know putting marble on buildings in downtown atlanta but uh somehow he did that but anyway he was the story goes he was running with these these skinheads in atlanta and like one day one of them like came home with a trombone that they had found the story went like like under a tree. So I think what probably had happened is some poor marching band kid had like set his trombone down and went for a drink of water. <laughs> and so, and a skin has stole his trombone. Um, and it wound up in Rob Bell's hands. He gave it to Rob and, um, and yeah. And, and that, you know, inspired him to come out to an ME330 show and say, I'm learning to play the trombone. And, uh, and because he had that sharp suit on, I was like, hell yeah, you're in. When you said hell yeah to him joining, how many horn players did you already have? So at the time we, John, our singer played trumpet and then Matt Nobby played saxophone. So we had a, like a, I think he was playing alto then. So alto and trumpet. So real, real good. It was perfect. It was like, I remember uh, the first song we played, like at practice, it was a really simple horn line, and the horn line was just like ba da da da, and and like when we added trombone to it, I was like, oh oh, like that's what a horn section sounds like, and and that was about all like Rob could play at the time, you know was just you know like honk notes but it sounded perfect and then he practiced so hard oh my god he would just do like 
lip exercises constantly and like study out of books and he took lessons and stuff. He wanted to be in the band so bad that he just he practiced really hard and he like he got really, really good. So, yeah, Rob lucked out when he came to that Red Sea show. Had those Atlanta skinheads not stolen some poor high schoolers, you know, or grade schoolers trombone. Think of what would happen to ME330. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Or like, yeah. And like, I don't know. I think of like all the cool stuff we wound up doing. You know, we got got to do as a band, you know, like like touring in Japan and all over Europe and, and all this stuff. And like, I don't know, like would Rob have wound up going on those? Maybe, maybe some, maybe you'd have found some other way to, you know, to make, you know, cool, crazy stuff happen in his life. But it's like, it's just cool. Those moments that, that go down there, you're like, Whoa, that changed everything for that person. And you never know when it's going to happen. I remember one time you told me that an early influence for ME330 was The Urge. Hell yeah. Local St. Louis band who they got kind of popular as more of an alt-rock 311-ish type band. But back in the day, they were more of like a Fishbone influenced ska band, right? Yeah. And they were one of the first like real like local shows I ever went to. And um and they were playing ska songs. I remember seeing them playing uh, like a ska version or not ska version, but playing a cover of uh, the song Gangsters. Uh, and just like, oh, I was so into it. And their singer was like super energetic and just doing cartwheels on stage and flips and shit. And uh, I just like seeing them and they're like my first time, like in a pit, like all all the things that like, hit you at the right age i was just like oh this band yeah they they just had the right thing they had the energy they had great songs uh they had a horn section like all the stuff like i wanted my band to have as well um so yeah they were a huge influence were you like a big ska fan at that point or was it like actually getting to experience it live did that sort of make it a bigger deal to you that definitely made it a bigger deal my brother had brought home Previous to seeing them, I, he had brought home that uh, that compilation, this R two tone. So I listened to that over and over and over again. So then seeing a band like play that style live was like really really exciting too. Like oh, I could do that, you know? Yeah, the urge was great. I don't know if it's like this for kids anymore, but something about seeing somebody within your local area do something musically somehow is just completely different than hearing records by complete strangers in like other parts of the world do it. It's just a totally different thing. It doesn't even have to be that they're better at it. It's just like, it's just makes it so much more attainable and it it makes it make more sense to you in a way you can kind of see the moving parts. Yeah. You know, when you see the band play it, it's just, it's just an important part of the experience. It seems like. Yeah. And when you see a band like, like oh they put out a cassette they put out a cd they they have a t-shirt at their show like all the little steps the little things that you do to become like a band it's it's uh yeah when you see someone that is your contemporary doing the same thing and you're from the same neighborhood it you know the the light bulb goes on so in early MEC 30 was it a democracy as far as writing went or were you writing a lot of the songs at the time let me think here so I wrote 
even even early on i think i wrote a lot of the songs um and the songs that i didn't write per se like i would like some of the songs early on with uh i wrote with john kavanaugh so like a song on press like called spilled my drink where actually yeah i would say he he wrote that because like well, it was a collaborative effort. I I would come up with a chord progression, and I would I would sit and I'd play it just over and over again, and he'd write with a pen and paper, and and so so that melody and and words like he he'd come up with. Um, there were a couple songs like that, like Press. I think same thing. I think he wrote lyrics and uh, words to that. Uh, Who's your love? Like like that was you know I wrote lyrics and and uh chords and melodies and music all the horn lines pretty much throughout me 330 or i i wrote too uh, and usually it would be a thing where i'd i'd just come up with the chords and i'd sing the horn horn lines to the horn players and they would sing them uh oftentimes i'd i'd be involved at least with parts that like harmony parts and things like that too um all of the lines except for the best ME330 horn line I did not write. Um, that the song off press called Fleba, it's my favorite horn line from the band. Um, but I just played those chords over and over again, and Matt Nobby wrote that uh, that horn line. I think it's beautiful, and uh, it's the only one he ever wrote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So who's your love? That's a hundred percent Dan creation. Yeah. Alrighty. Did that come from a place of anger towards your fellow <laughs> man or where did that come from? I I think we were just being silly. Like, or trying, you know, I think, uh, I don't know, man. Let me try to get back in that headspace that, uh, <laughs> that freshman in high school headspace. I remember the first time I saw you guys, you guys were in, um, you guys were at Slim's in San Francisco. It might've even been with John. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That could have been. And I feel like I remember, you know, even from back in the day and you continued on for a long time closing with who's your love. Yeah. And I remember, a, a, an intro that was kind of like felt a little hostile, <laughs> you know, you know, talking about, you know, this, these kids you have to deal with you know like that I, but I, it's a long time ago i don't know if i'm remembering it right because i'd never heard the term hoosier at that point sure, in my life sure well it, it was it's a very local to to st louis it's funny though like i've watched there's there's some videos i don't know at what point where i kind of dropped it but if if i go back and listen there's somewhere on the internet there's some old old footage of ME330 playing a show at like the bottleneck or something in, in Lawrence, Kansas, where there's, there's like a lot of banter and stuff in between the songs where I'm the main one talking, you know, and, uh, I like listen to myself talking between songs and I'm like, who is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Cause I like, I see this person that's like, trying to be tough you know that's like really trying to you know like show show this room who's boss 
<laughs> and it's it's just so so cringy for me, you know. And it's wild. I it makes me think of like how I don't know, people grow up today with like everything they say and everything they do recorded by the the internet and that's like who they are in their life forever, you know. And god, I like I certainly did many cringy things and said many cringy things that uh that did not make it to the uh the digital world and i i think i'm uh kind of thankful for that uh that i was brought up in that era where there is like actually uh room for things to be forgotten and rooms room for a person to like grow and mature a little bit you know before it's just like uh, you're branded a thing for life. So during that song, at some point during the the bridge before the final chorus, you started slapping Chris across the face. No, no, he started slapping me. <laughs> That's yeah. what it was. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Why did that start happening? And did you, did you ever actually get mad because of that? Um, I don't know if I ever got. Okay, why did it start happening? I think just we were just looking for more gags in the, in the set, yeah. you know, wouldn't that be fun if, you know, like when I say this, okay, it's a bad line in the song anyway, about slapping someone. And then, but I thought like, maybe it would be cushion, it would cushion it or distract people from the terrible lyric. If I actually got slapped myself, uh, during the song. So, <laughs> So yeah, so Chris would slap me every night and like one night like he slapped me so hard that I like fell over like back into the amps and knocked the amps over. Like I I could not believe <laughs> I didn't know why I don't know why he was so mad at me and why he hit me that hard but <laughs> yes, there was one night I was just like what the like why why did you hit me that hard uh this is supposed to be just a little you know stand close to the mic so it sounds like a big slap but he popped me um so yeah sometimes that would go wrong um <laughs> but you didn't cut it even after that you didn't cut that <laughs> no, no 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 even with the bruise on my face the next day we didn't cut it yeah we don't do that part anymore <laughs> that's one gag we cut yeah the other thing I wanted to ask about Chris from, from that period, you guys used to always do this bit on stage where you talk about Chris loading the trailer at the end of the night. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that you would give him a bag of chips for doing it. <laughs> was this made up or was this like a real thing? That's all just factual. <laughs> Why did Chris load the trailer? Because all of us had jobs in ME330. Ted was like the accountant. He like, like he didn't collect the money at the end of the night. That was my job to go settle with promoters and to deal with the booking agent and everything. And then I would get the money. I would hand it to Ted and then he's the accountant. He would like divvy it up and save money and pay bills and things like that. Um, Chris loaded the trailer. Jerry drove the van um, and fixed the van when it needed fixing. And Rob Bell wrote the set lists every night. And that's, those were our jobs <laughs> for many, many years. 
I feel like you and Rob have the good jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like I had the job of like going to the promoter like every night and getting shorted and then going back to the van and telling everyone that we got shorted. Okay. Well, Rob has the good job. Rob had the best job. Yeah. (laughs) Rob had the easiest one. No, I I take that back. Rob's actual job besides writing the set list. And I, I don't know why I missed this on the first run through of jobs. He, his title was actually ambassador. So like when we would stay at people's houses and everyone else wanted to go to sleep, Rob would just stay up and rage with people and just, <laughs> just, just like, like distract the people who wanted to party and let us sleep. Like, all right, Rob, go get him. Go get him. Go get him in the other room. I go. Yeah. And uh he would. He would just like hang all night with the most annoying, horrible people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so true or false about Jerry. Okay. Jerry is a human road atlas. True. 100% true. 100%. We would call Jerry on tour when we would get lost and not know where our venue was. And Jerry would tell us how to get there. So, you know, yeah. Like touring pre, you know, having maps. Like uh, even before, like at one point we started like printing out MapQuest maps and bringing those on tour. But before that, like. He could, he just knew where major streets were in all the major cities of the United States. So you'd pull into like Denver and you'd be like, oh yeah, if I go this way, it'll take me over to Colfax. That's where all the theaters are and clubs. And he just, he just knew. It, it was amazing. Like, oh, we'd be in Cincinnati. Like, oh no, I think if we head south on this, it'll hit this highway and then we're good. Because like the Rand McNally's weren't that detailed, especially, and and not all the cities were had blown up maps so he's amazing yeah yeah i remember one time you know because just dealing with a road atlas you if you hit construction and you couldn't go through a certain way <laughs> yeah you're like oh i don't know what we're doing now and i remember one time we just called jerry he's like oh yeah go, go here <laughs> go here go here that'll get you there yeah back in the day we didn't have google we, <laughs> we had, had jerry lungus <laughs> <laughs> yeah the g stood for jerry instead of google let's hear the story of so your second album you have a song since the short long okay since the short long's gone i think that's the name of the title okay yeah who who is the short long and what's the story behind that person that's a real person uh not a real person <laughs> no all that, that was a character just a made-up character I could have sworn that was like a real person at a club or something. <laughs> Sorry to shatter it. Oh my God. Sorry. Yeah. I think that was like kind of meant to be our like sequel to Hoosier Love. Ah, okay. What about uh, You Stole Our Stuff? Is that a real person? That is a real story. That was, we played a like a bad like dance club in Kansas City where like they had a band room and then like a the DJ room. And like people could freely like walk between the two. There was no separation in the clubs. So it was, we get these weird gigs there. Uh, Like we'd go to Lawrence and play like our all ages show. And then we'd play in Kansas city right next door and like play this terrible bar show where we'd have to play like three 50 minute sets in this room. That's like next to a giant DJ room. 
we'd get paid, I don't know, like three or 400 bucks. So it was like, Ooh, we're making a million dollars, you know? <laughs> so, so we do, we'd play for, you know, all night. And then like people would flow out of the dance room and like watch like half a song and be like, Oh God, I'm getting out of here. Or they'd just, or they'd steal things from the merch table. And uh, yeah, that's, that happened where we like, so we stopped, I think we stopped the song during our set to like go get the shirts back from these people that had stolen, <laughs> stolen them from us while we were playing. How much did they steal? I think just like a shirt and like a CD or something like not, not a lot of stuff, but it was just like, just like shocking. Because <laughs> yeah, they weren't even trying to hide it. They just did it. Yeah. Yeah. It just like steal from like a vault from a band that, that we were just so broke and just so, you know, I, it just seemed like the wrong people to steal from. Don't steal from us. Did they try to claim they were from a radio station? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think they, they did. did. I, okay, now that you're reminding me of my own lyrics, <laughs> I think that was a discussion as I'm like, like trying to get the CD back. And they're like, oh, but I'm, I work for a radio station. I'll get you guys tons of exposure. You know, like, oh, oh, nice. Oh, yeah. And so you said no to that? Yeah, but you stole that. I, I said I didn't want to be on your radio station. <laughs> okay so just to be clear the green t-shirt is a is an met 30 t-shirt what design was printed on it do you remember at the time it could have been the short long t-shirt we had a just a cartoon guy with like a a funny haircut uh, and that and that was definitely on a green t-shirt we also had this there were there were several green t-shirts in our past but I'm guessing it was that one. The first two albums, there's a lot. There's various member rotations, and when we get to Crab Rangoon, we lock into the basic the lineup that kind of continues on. Yeah, into the remaining days. Yes, yes. And so also also Crab Rangoon, uh, according to NPR, is a uh, entered now entered into the pop canon. By the way, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Aaron. I don't. Thanks for single-handedly did that for you. Entering that <laughs> album into the pop canon. <laughs> How did you get such a strong vote in the pop canon? But eh, I, you know, <laughs> they they wanted to know. <laughs> now they know. So, anyways, um, you know, you're the third lead singer of ME330, basically. Even though you were a primary songwriter from the beginning. Sure. Yeah. Were you reluctant to sing? And, and what, what about at that point, Crab Rangoon, were you like, okay, I'm ready to be the singer? Yeah, I was super reluctant to sing. I think, um, I, I don't know. Like, I think we had, uh, well, our first singer, John, like he played trumpet, but like we had that thing where the singer could just like move around and jump around and and like not be tied to like a guitar or to a mic stand you know so that was always fun and then from there we got a guy that just sang that jason nelson he just sang and so he could just he was almost 100 percent handheld mic all the time and he would get in people's faces and get down in the crowd and that was great like i always liked that part of our show you know that it was uh kind of in your face but then um 
Yeah, I think I think when Crab Rangoon came along, I was I was thankful to just be able to write a song and and sing the song the way I had heard it in my head and, you know, just kind of follow through on on the vision of the song. Did your viewpoint of like what this lead singer needs to be stage wise change or did you just gain the confidence as a singer at that point? Yeah, I think I just like just kind of let go of that. Like, I think it. Well, we were on tour when Jason actually left the band and he uh, I just I had to take over his singing. So I kind of mm, figured it okay. figured out on that tour that, oh, this can work. You know, by the time we got home, we were saying, you know, do we get another lead singer because he quit the band or do we continue on? And it seemed obvious by then, like, oh, let's just continue on. I mean, the thing is, like, I feel like both of your first both John and Jason were good singers. And I like the first two albums, but Emmy 30 got better once it became the the five, the you know, with you singing. I just feel like you guys became a better band. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's really like because of personnel or anything. I think I my guess is it's just more to do with timing and where we were at as a band to get with playing together and where I was at with songwriting as well. You know, I think, I think if either of those guys and were in the band, I think that it still would have been a good record, you know, but uh, I think for me, it, it just felt more my own voice than I was stoked on that. Yeah. I, I think your voice works better. Like the songs work better in your voice. Thanks. I think that was a, definitely an element. I mean, I'm sure they would have been great with either singer, but yeah. I mean, like, I always loved Jason's, like, voice because he could, like, you know, he could, like, howl. <laughs> yeah, you could do those great rock and roll screams and stuff. Yeah. But, like, your songs and your voice, like, just actually kind of sound, like, more, like, it makes more sense. Yeah, I don't know. I, I Like, when I when I listen back to the records, I, I definitely, like, that's a, that's a point when, like, with I just feel better about those records yeah that I sang yeah. out, you know, but I think it's just uh I don't know. Yeah. Thanks. I've heard all the songs on Chumps live so many times <laughs> that to hear the actual record sounds wrong now. <laughs> because I've heard I've heard you sing those songs more times than I've actually heard the record. Sure, yeah. And I love all the songs on those records. And I remember my first time seeing Emmy Thirty, Jason was was still the singer. And I remember you were bouncing around the stage and screaming and jumping up and down with your guitar. When I knew that you were going to have to be the lead singer, I, I felt, as a fellow guitar player, I felt a little bit bad for you. Because <laughs> I, I I saw how much you were enjoying, you know, jumping around and, and doing that whole thing. And I knew, you know, once you had a mic stand in front of you, there you couldn't really do that as much. But you kind of found a way. Yeah, yeah. You, you really uh, went for it. I mean... You were definitely into like dragging the mic mic stand around and like yeah, and I think that was try I was trying to make up for that like okay, we don't have a guy zooming around the stage now. I've got to do some some extra stuff. It worked so well though. When did the whole part where you really played up the sort of rock and roll, you know, we're a rock and roll band, <laughs> the theatrical element that you brought? Yeah, where you you know when did that come in? Was it tied into you being the lead singer? Uh, I think we were kind of doing that like before Jason left. I, th I think probably when Jason joined, um, I think we had this uh, for a minute there. We 
we want it like our shows to be like like rock and roll like a stadium rock we want to be like stadium ska you know you know like like where it just felt like a rock and roll show but still like fun and like uh ska so i don't know i think and and we always kind of did it tongue in cheek too so it just felt funny but like it's like funny, but then at the same time, like when we would start the show and like come down on that big cord and like Ted used to have like a smoke machine that he would step on and shoot out smoke in front of the drums. And sometimes we'd have pyrotechnics and things like that. Um, it just felt like, Oh, it's funny, but it, it's fun. And it, and like, yeah. Oh, they're <laughs> like, we're, they're going for it, you know? So, uh, I don't know, kind of like like with Jerry with the the chainsaw, like it was funny, but like also like if someone comes at you with the chainsaw, it's like, oh, shit, that's it's actually kind of scary, you know, because it's <laughs> it's loud and it's like kicking out smoke. So it's it's like, I don't know, like I like that idea of being like, like kind of fun, but also like a little bit shocking or a little bit like, you know, like, oh, shit, like, like here it comes you know it's so funny how especially in that time period like you know you do things a little ironically just but it, it's like it's like it's just the gate it's the gate to get into the thing like you can all have fun with the stadium ska on this on the on, on actually an authentic level but you you get there by it being presented in an ironic way yeah i don't know there's there's fun and like kind of pretending too sometimes like i uh i oddly i feel like when even now when mu330 plays even when i think the jeff band plays if there's like someone this is, sounds really vain but like if there's someone up front like taking photos like i just i kick into like funny like rock and roll pose kind of to to like give them funny good pictures you know and like there's a thing that happens like when you're like, you know, like pointing at the sky or like pointing at the crowd and like making a rock face, like, like in jest, like suddenly like you are actually rocking <laughs> and you're actually having fun and maybe a little more fun because you're just posing and being funny, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Um, so I definitely have those moments where I'm just doing a thing because I think it's hilarious, but then I'm, I wind up cracking myself up and like, oh shit, I'm having a good time. All right. Yeah, it's like when uh, when I talked to the uh, John Bunkley from uh, Gangster Fun, and we're talking about all their um, covers because they used to just you know pull out all the all the bad classic rock covers, sure, and turn them into ska. And it's kind of, it was the same thing. It was like a joke, but it's also like a thing where everyone's like, hell yeah, I know this song. I'm going to sing along the loud as I can. And it's like everyone's having fun singing along to some. Had they played that song straight up and not been like a little bit of funny about it, nobody would have like come along with them. But sure. because they present it in a funny way, like you, you can actually enjoy it on a real level. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing them play some of those songs. Yeah. <laughs> so good. John's the best. So even though, you know, I'm going to have to disagree a little bit with with NPR and their whole uh, Crab Rangoon being the, the ME330 to put in the pop canon. Uh, I'm going to say uh, 
if it was up to me, uh, no, I'm going to say uh, Ultra Panic was the best ME330 album. Are you arguing with yourself <laughs> me? now here? What's Please going on? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Ultra Panic, though, that's actually the best ME230 album. Do you agree? Agree. I feel like the band was playing their best then and like uh i don't know i think i think we did a good job of like sonically recording that record too for sure it is the only mu330 record that we did i don't know what some people call like pre-production meaning we like we recorded it like a test version of it like on ted's home recording stuff before we ever went into the studio hmm so Ted, I'm sure has versions of Ultra Panic that we recorded at his house. And and we, which means like we recorded everything, like all, you know, drums, bass, guitar, guitar overdubs, like uh, trombones, uh, like background vocals, things like that. We knew what we were going to play when we went to the studio, uh, like all the overdubs, all the vocals. And before that, we never really did. We were just like, oh, we got the basic tracks. What should we add now? You know, we didn't really think it through very well, but that album we did. So I think uh, it, it just it shows. I feel, I feel like uh, we just played it better because we had played it more times. It is a really solid album, like start to finish. Yeah, just the songwriting, the, the yeah, the recording. And it's just like so I like the, I like how the songs are short. A lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. All And that album, too, I think. I don't think that was that we did any i know we did all the all the basic tracks and stuff yeah like all all on tape like two inch tape with lance reynolds in chicago were you guys going strong at that point because that ends up being your last official album uh yeah yeah we were still going pretty strong then i'd say yeah did you have plans for an album after um yes yes <laughs> <laughs> Any details or? Um, no, I, we recorded some stuff and then just never really finished it. <laughs> and then we like even since then, like since the, the whole album that kind of got, I don't know, I wouldn't say scrapped, just never finished. And then since then, we recorded like three songs, I think, just uh, that's a, within the last five years or so. And just have never released them. Just like, recorded them like, OK. All right, those are recorded. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. Maybe we'll put some stuff out at some point. Is the material on the uh, post Ultra Panic stuff good? The songwriting, at least. I don't know. I, I think it's good, but I don't know. It's just been so long since we've put something out that it, it like, I don't know. I hate to say like, oh, we're gonna put something out and then just like wait another, you know, ten years or whatever. It's like why, why you know. I don't know why well, put it out there that like, oh, we're working on stuff that like, I don't know. There's not really like at this point, there doesn't feel like a lot of intention to put to release new stuff. Everyone's got uh kind of full lives going on at this point, doing other things. So, uh, yeah, there's not a big rush to put out more ME330 stuff. When Ultra Panic came out in 2002, right? How was it received? Because I feel like a lot of people had moved away from ska at that point. I don't know. We didn't do like all that much touring on it. I'm trying to think like, well, we did the, I can't remember what year the um, ska is dead tour was. That was a little later than that. It was a I little think. later, maybe 2004 or something. 
something I like think that. Something like that, yeah. Um, so we did that, and that, and I felt like the reception was great. We went out on tour with. It was uh, us opening up, and then uh, Voodoo Glow Skulls and Streetlight Manifesto, and um, and yeah, I felt like it was great. I felt like a lot of people were there to see us, and we're stoked. You know, yeah, I'm trying to think what other tours we did before that one. I think. I think on Ultra Panic, like the one like headliner tour we did was with uh, we headlined with Suburban Legends came out with us. Um, and that was fine. Like we, we just uh, I felt like we just got to a point where things just plateaued for us, where it felt like, OK, this is this is ME330. This is where we're at. And this is probably where we're going to stay. Like regardless of like more albums we put out or like whether they're good or bad <laughs> like this is this is where the band is at like it it just felt like okay it's not it's not necessarily growing what would you say that level was that you guys plateaued at how would you describe that unsustainable <laughs> like what do you mean like you play it to a couple hundred people, you know? Yeah, well, I don't know. I always felt like with ME330, if we we got to a level where we could, like, make a living at it, but uh, we have to be on tour for 250-plus uh, days a year, basically. Like, we could do it, but just, like, that's all you're doing in your life, you know? And that was great. And that was exactly what we wanted for that chunk of our lives, you know. But when other things started happening for people in their lives, it seemed like that was, you know, a little unsustainable. What was the period of ME230 that you did tour that way? Like from like when did that start? And then I assume it ended right around Ultra Panic. Yeah, I would say like from uh, probably like ninety three or so through like 2001 or so. Okay. So a good solid eight years of just nonstop touring. Yeah. It was like blank check for our booking agent, basically just like fill up the schedule. It wasn't like, Oh, we want to tour these three weeks and then we'll tour again in the fall or something. It was, it was like, okay, it's 1999. Just book us as many shows as you can. And we'll show up and play them. Was Steve Ozark always your booking agent? Pretty much, yeah. Like, like early on, Matt Nobby booked a lot of shows for us. Like when we were very first starting to play out of town shows. But even even then, like early on, like the first few shows we played out of town were in Lawrence, Kansas, and that's where we met Steve. And he saw us open for Skanky Pickle and was like, "I want to book you guys. You guys are great." So uh, immediately we had a booking agent and immediately we're like okay you can book us but you have to book us at least you know like 15 20 shows a month he's like what <laughs> nobody wants to do that <laughs> like we want to do that like like that's all we want to do so it was like he he wanted to write a contract where he was like going to be our sole booking agent we're like okay well you do that but you have to come up with i think the number was 15 or 16 like at least 15 shows a month you know otherwise we're leaving your agency so wait was he actually booking other bands at this point or were you guys his first band i think we were his first band that like was pushing him 
pushing him to to book all ages shows. So okay, he had a bunch of bands that were touring like the ski circuit in Colorado, like like blues bands or kind of reggae bands and things on that kind of circuit. Um, but we were wanting to play all ages shows and, and that was a lot of that was new to him. And like, and he would squeeze us into these like ski resorts and stuff in the circuit that he knew. And we'd play these terrible, <laughs> terrible shows, <laughs> but again, like would make, make a little bit of money and that, that would help kind of fund the, uh, the all ages shows or get us out to California to, you know, play more all ages shows. But it was always that was always the battle because like, I don't know, uh, Steve is a great guy, but he, he always, you know, like, as any bookie agent was like, oh, shit, I could book this, you know, show at a ski resort and I could get them like 700 bucks. That's easy, easy money, you know. But for us, it, it was like we could drive to the ski resort, like hit black ice, wreck the van, you know, yeah, and make this. You know, have to buy a new van. You know, yeah, sure, we made seven hundred bucks, but and and like play these shows that we felt like we we're just spinning wheels. We're not growing. You know, like the goal was always just please all ages shows, all ages shows, all ages shows. And he got great at doing that too. Like he he would like so often it was you know the promoters were kids, kids like young, you know, like thirteen to sixteen years old, you know booking shows and he would just walk them through like what what a what a deal looks like you know like and yeah yeah he, he steve did a great job for us for many many years i want to see if you had a similar experience with steve um when you would play in lawrence kansas would he book you at like a normal venue or would he just book you wherever so that he could see you <laughs> <laughs> well, huh i don't know you usually would book us at normal ish venues. i don't know what do you call normal in lawrence kansas i mean i mean we got we got booked at a straight up crack house so that he could see us <laughs> <laughs> well we never got to play the crack house, so, but <laughs> okay but we yeah i don't know we played some awesome places like the outhouse and uh and the bottleneck and yeah. the replay lounge but yeah, I, I, no, we didn't really play that many weird places. We, I don't know. Lawrence was Lawrence was great for us from kind of day one from our first show there. So, um, I want I want to say eight to ten years ago. I don't know. It feels like maybe it was yeah, maybe it was that long ago. I saw you. You invited me to your apartment in Santa Cruz for like a house show you were doing, and I and I came. Okay. Do you, do you remember what I'm talking about? You had a friend, friend from Texas, I believe, who was also playing. Oh, oh, that would be more. That was probably more like fifteen years ago. Okay, was it that long ago? <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, that was my friend Jerm. Jer- yeah, that's, that's yeah. it. Yeah, at that show, you played a bunch of songs that were like, like I don't know, like Halloween themed or like monster themed. Yeah, you know. What I, and I f- swear to God, you said, "Okay, there's a ME three thirty album coming and i'm gonna play some songs off of it and it was all so okay what were those supposed to be me 330 songs so yeah that was the album i was talking about earlier that we yeah so most of that stuff is recorded but we just haven't released it it's just not totally finished and uh i don't know i at this point i don't even 
they may be on some hard drive of Ted's that who knows if it's alive or dead at this point. But uh, yeah, those songs are are fun. And yeah, there are a bunch of monster songs that just never saw the light of day. There was some good songs. I mean, I only heard them once, but yeah, there was definitely some songs on there I liked. Yeah, there was a, a mummy song. Vampire Girl. Yeah, I, I remember Vampire Girl. Yeah, was there a war, Wolfman? Yeah, I've I've heard you play the Wolfman song before. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I still will play those songs from time to time just because they're fun. Like around Halloween, there's a Frankenstein one, so they're out there. I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll finish them someday. Maybe I'll record them. That's all, who knows. Who knows? So were you planning, was it supposed to be a Halloween album or, I mean, you'd never really done a concept album before. They did the Christmas album. That's true. So I, yeah, I always thought that the monster album was going to be like the Halloween. Right, right. Well, it was more the idea was, okay, so Jerry Lundquist would bring these amazing mixtapes on tour with him that Shannon Smith had made. I just want to insert uh, real quick, Shannon Smith who is Kurtwood Smith's son, by the way, Kurtwood Smith from That 70s Show and RoboCop. I used to I used to be a recipient of his mixtapes too. Amazing, amazing, like best mixtape maker out there. Just the, the most random stuff, all from his vinyl collection. And uh, when I watched him make mixtapes before, he's completely like in the zone, like a jazz musician. Like he's Whoa. not planning them out. He's just like feeling it. He's just, oh, you know, you know what? This song will go good next. And uh, <laughs> and one time he was uh, finishing, he was working on a tape of mine for me. I was watching him and he was doing that. And he was like, every once in a while, he would like, you know what? I'm going to put a little bit. I'm going to put a little bit of some radio. I'm going to put some like radio on there. Just like yeah. DJ talking about yeah. like weather and, and the news. And that way, when you listen back, you're going to be like, oh, I remember that. I remember when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> okay, so that's proceed so proceed with Jerry no, and Shannon's tape. That's I loved hearing that. <laughs> uh so so on tour with ME three thirty, the Jerry as his job was to drive almost ninety percent of the time, except after shows when which he never ever ever drove. Um <laughs> that that but, would be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> very, very, very illegal. Um but driving two shows. Jerry always had 100% control of the music, uh, which meant he all that we listened to on tour were Shannon Smith's mixtapes, um, which, as you said, there would be there would be like this, you know, some old garagey surf song. And then mm -hmm. there would be like a funny, like old movie trailer. Uh, and then like maybe a another crazy garagey monster song. And then like after that, there'd be like, like a prank phone call, you know? Yeah. But, but we got to know these mixtapes so intimately because we listened to them over and over and over again. And like you said, like you got to know like which one's coming up next. And like, I, I miss those. I would, I would love to just sit with ME330 and listen to one of those mixtapes again because I I I feel like it it probably would bring me to tears. Anyway, those tapes were definitely the just listening to them over and over again were the 
inspiration to like write some kind of monster songs because there there always seemed to be a good dose of these monstery kind of old garagey songs on these mixtapes and uh it was one of those things like with the christmas album once i got started writing a little bit about a certain thing like oh the other songs just came and they and they came really fast and then ted started writing songs he wrote some great ones about a ghost and then one about the blob um so i don't know here i am getting excited about this record that probably will never come out but uh coming soon but yeah <laughs> <laughs> no i'm just no, kidding it's never coming no no what's funny is like every few years like like someone will like comment or something on a post or you know, when's the monster album coming out you know <laughs> and, and like and it'll like gain steam and people are like yeah i remember you talked about that 18 years ago <laughs> it's like uh yeah so so hopefully this stirs up a bunch of that again <laughs> not coming out were the songs scott or they were they more garage rock like the the way mu230 was going to play them uh they were mostly scott with some garagey feel to it there's uh on this one of the songs is on that scott's dead compilation it's one about aliens called please don't run okay so one of them actually did get released but i see okay your song "Law," it became uh-huh. became a uh, a thing where you'd bring people on stage to play that song on guitar because it's yeah. a uh, simple song. When did that tradition begin? And was there a story behind like why that began? I don't know. I think I think we maybe did it like probably some band was on tour with us, and and someone in the band was like, "Can I play that song?" And we had a guest come up and play. And it may have been like, I know like Dan Andriano, maybe like when we toured with Tuesday, um, like I remember him playing that song maybe a couple times. Like Maybe it started then. It might have been before that, though, too. Um, but I think it started with a band we were on tour with. A guitar player just came up and played. And then I could just jump around and do the thing that I couldn't do. <laughs> it's like oh i don't have to hold the guitar and it was really fun and then i i started realizing i i I think i just thought one night like i bet like if i shouted out to the crowd like who plays guitar you know i bet someone would be able to do this you know and then i think i tried it and it didn't work and then tried it again but had two people come up I was like, who who plays guitar? And I'd say, like, don't raise your hand if you can't really play guitar. Don't embarrass yourself, you know, <laughs> and then try to get good guitar players. Yeah. You know, and people who seemed really confident, I'd try to pick them. And I picked two. And then I'd try. We did it. It turned into this whole shtick that turned out to be like 15 minutes long <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> where we'd like have a competition and each I'd show them the song. Each person would try. The crowd would, you know make one person feel really bad (laughs) and then then, like it just turned into a thing that like worked really well like uh even if the person it got so that even if the person wasn't good and they couldn't really play that well it didn't matter because the crowd was just so on their side you know i just build it up like they're doing a thing you know and uh it was always fun it was always one of my funnest 
parts of playing an MU show. It still is. We still do that every show without fail. That's a song that like I probably would have we probably would have stopped playing years ago had not had it not been for that shtick. So Aaron, have you have you ever gotten on stage and played that song? No, I don't I don't know how to play guitar. I mean I tried to play guitar for years, but I suck at it. Adam, you must have you must Of course have. I have. Yeah. Come on. I want to talk about my favorite time though somebody did that. Okay. okay. Let's hear it. Berlin, Germany. Wild Oh, crazy town. Crazy town. <laughs> I remember that one well. Tell the crazy town story, oh. please. Wow. Um you want me to set it up a little bit? Sure. This is so, funny because this recently came up in a uh Death Rosenstock chat. Oh nice. Anyway, I'll let you go. <laughs> so it's it's Misfits of Ska Tour. It's Link 80, MEC 30, and Chinkies. It's one of the s- more uh sparsely attended shows of the tour. There were like five people there. There was no one there. There, there were two girls from, from America there. That's the main thing I remember. So show's happening, and all of a sudden all these dudes roll in wearing sunglasses and with spiky spiky hair and it's crazy town and they're playing down the street (laughs) with methods of mayhem tommy tommy lee's band at like the enormo dome and they heard they'd heard there was an american punk band playing down the street or a bunch of american punk bands playing the street so they came down to see us wow yeah and so then mc 30s playing (laughs) (laughs) keep going please because i yeah you probably remember better than me Oh, so Dan does this whole spiel. He's like, who who plays guitar? And one of the guitar player, the skinny guitar player from uh, Crazy Town, it's like me, <laughs> and runs up on stage. And he's like, he's like, yo, St. Louis represent or something. <laughs> he like won't shut the fuck up. And so then uh, Dan tries to show him how to play four chords. <laughs> in this song and play upstroke and dude cannot do it. He was struggling. Cannot do it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Wait, what kind of, I can't even remember. Like what kind of music did crazy? Come my lady. Come, come my lady. Be my butterfly. And so for for years after that, all the guys in link 80 would just sing that to each other. Like just randomly. Yeah, I think he, there were at least two of the chords he had just said no idea what I was talking about. Oh, but the best part though was then then Crazy Town invited the two American girls back to the crazy bus. And the girls uh, went. <laughs> two less people at our our show of five people attending. Yeah. Thanks Crazy Town. Thanks Crazy Town. So my recollection of that story is that like I took the guitar back from him. I think he did. Yeah. At some point, I was like, "No, I, I, I think I told him to beat it." <laughs> Amazing that because that never happened. I, I've seen people be terrible at that song, and you've just you just cheered them on. Did you know he was from a, a crazy town? Oh, they would not shut up about it. Yeah, they kept talking about crazy town. But like the funny thing about is like like at that time, like. I had no idea who Crazy Town was. I didn't know, I didn't know what they were talking about. I just knew this guy. I just knew this guy couldn't play the guitar, so I was like, "Get out of here!" And then, like, I don't know. And then later, like after that tour, I get home and they're like on the cover of Spin magazine. I was like, "Oh, oh, 
There he is. Yeah. <laughs> so good. I got to ask you one, one other perspective of a story from that tour. I want to see, see if you remember. We stayed in a, a Formula One hotel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what happened there? Okay. So we, uh, we get there really late at night. Is that outside of Paris? I yeah. think. And uh, we get there really late. And in Formula One, there's just like this, uh, there's a little computer at the front that you like put in your code and it spits out a key. There's no one working the desk. So we go back, we get our room number, ME330 does, and we we go back to the room and we open the door. I, I open the door, I look at it, I'm like, whoa, there's someone sleeping in here already. And I just shut the door really fast. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no, what do we do? There must be some mistake, you know? Like I'm checking the number and like this, there's no one at the desk to talk to. So I like go back and I open it again and look and the, there's a window low to the ground. That's just like wide open that, and it becomes apparent like, Oh, this person just crawled through the window and sleeping in the bed uh, in our room. So there's no one at the desk. What do we do? You know? So I shut the door again and we're all like whispering in the hall like oh god oh no 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 and uh i think we we're like oh we gotta send jerry in (laughs) or did you go in with him yeah so it was it was me jerry uh rob and and uh ted so you had jerry gigantic me gigantic yeah rob you think his hair was like dyed bright red at the time and and (laughs) And Ted with bright blue dreadlocks. Yeah. All like standing sen- in this bed. And we all just go, hey, time to get up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I seem to remember Jerry saying something like, hey, buddy, it's checkout time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. And then he like, yeah, we got him out of the room. And then I seem to remember him being like really wasted. He was super fucking and, drunk. And he went down to the lobby and like laid under the payphone. Yeah, for like just confused. But then we went into the room, and then we're like, "Oh, like who gets that bed? <laughs> who gets to sleep in the bed?" That random dude was passed out in. Yeah, that but. dude was dirty, and he had like definitely like slogged through some like grass <laughs> and mud, and then climbed through the window, and then he had turned on he had turned on football super loud. <laughs> so we walked into the room, oh, and not only was that. he dead asleep. But the TV was blasting a football game. <laughs> and he he wasn't sleeping. He wasn't like under the covers, but he had like kicked off both his shoes and one of his socks. Because I remember seeing one naked foot. And and he had also fallen asleep smoking a cigarette. Oh, I don't remember that. And so his hand had fallen backward and the the cherry from the cigarette had burned a hole <laughs> in in the in the top of the mattress. I, I just remember you just being in the lobby or maybe in the hallway outside of the room, just sitting against, with your back against the wall, just head in your hands, just like, <laughs> what are we, what the, like, we're just yeah. all exhausted, like so yeah. tired. Like it's towards the end of the tour and you were just like, oh no, what, what do we even do right now? I just want to go yeah. to bed. Yeah. Cause that was probably like a big splurge to get a hotel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
we we just, I'm sure it was one of those nights where it was just like we'd been driving all day and and Barney was like I can't drive anymore. Yeah. I'm like all right, fine. We'll get a hotel, which never happened. Yeah. <laughs> Always just sleeping in squats over there and stuff or some somebody's weird house or or the hostel, sleeping in a hostel. Indeed. I want to talk a little bit about about you uh transitioning to playing solo. Yeah. Because I kind of I've kind of I remember when that happens. I think one of your first solo shows was actually a show with Link 80. Yeah. I don't know if you'll remember this. I drove down south somewhere, right? Yeah, it was like a weird spot where like it was like a restaurant and so there were like tables and chairs everywhere. And they were all kind of stacked up and we showed up late. And you were like, "Oh, I'm so happy to see you guys." And <laughs> and we're like, "Why? What's what's the matter?" And and you're like, "I I played a show and I played my set and these two guys just started punching each other." <laughs> Do you remember this at all? Kind of. Yeah, like I definitely remember uh, I remember driving. It was somewhere south, right? Like down in Mississippi or yeah, that Alabama sounds right. Mississippi or something. Sounds right. Yeah, I, but oddly, I don't remember the people punching each other. <laughs> yeah, I remember you just being us getting there and you being really freaked out. It was just like two or three shows or something. It was one of the very first times I'd gone by myself yeah. somewhere. I was so used to being on tour with a band that I was. It, Kind of just felt like, oh, people I know, thank God, you know. How much of a transition has it been going from, you know, touring that way to doing to just doing the solo thing? Like when you did the the living room tour. Yeah, the living room tour was awesome. It was so fun. Yeah, I guess that tour I did like sixty four shows one summer, like all in people's houses and backyards and garages and attics. Did you bring? That was when Laszlo came with you. He did come for part of that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He came for like a couple weeks, I think, of that. Nice. Um, it was so fun. I feel like I've, I got to, like, I really made some friends on that tour, like people's houses that I played that I still consider them friends. And like, I've seen them repeatedly in that city on tour and hung out outside of touring and stuff too. Um, it's that was probably the most memorable tour I've ever done because just you I remember every every house like it's just so vivid. Can we ask? Can we talk a little bit about how that how that tour was booked? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I just put it up online and then I booked it. But but who who actually booked it? Mike Mike Park helped me with that tour <laughs> for sure. But my favorite thing is that Mike pretended to be you. Well, he's watching the shows. <laughs> Man, I'm the secret is out. <laughs> I fucking love that. Uh, yeah, so so Mike was like, "I'll book it, but I'll book it as you." <laughs> Why though? <laughs> because because it's because funny. We, <laughs> well, it's funny, but also we thought that like because it's like I was like playing at people's houses and stuff, it would be weird to be like, "I'm Mike, I'm I'm Dan's booking agent." You know that that would be feel weird. Yeah, but like I didn't feel like I had the organizational skills to actually pull it off and do it. But Mike's like, I'll do it. You know, it's like, OK, so he so we set up like a Gmail account with as like my name. But Mike had access to it. We both had access so I could read the emails, but he was the only <laughs> one responding. 
ass. So. <laughs> I just remember Mike loving so much just oh, getting to like. He would try to write, write my voice, but then he he started doing shit like he'd ask all kinds of weird questions. What? So, <laughs> like what? yeah. For instance, it was like like people that I had actually stayed at their house before, and then like on like one of the responses, he was like, he's like, oh yeah, I was just wondering. By the way, is there any chance? Do you guys have a pool? <laughs> <laughs> and they write back, you've stayed with us. What do you mean? <laughs> do we have a pool? Like no. No, we don't have. So Mike's whole goal was to like book me places that had a pool because Mike imagined you know being able to go swimming would be awesome. Which yeah, but like <laughs> also to like grill people about you know I don't know it was it was weird it was a weird thing. I had only a couple kind of like fires did I have to kind of <laughs> kind of put out. Because Mike asking people weird questions, but he was he was he coming with you? No. So it so he had no personal investment in the pool. No, <laughs> no, no, no. But he, he except that he I would call him and be like, "There's a pool here." Be like, yes, yes. He'd just be excited for me. <laughs> so I I think also for all three of us, our first moment of like live music was at the book event in Oakland. Yeah. Oh yeah. Where Dan played. And you played a bunch of songs off Crab Goon, which was really awesome. And I remember I was singing along and I had to stop because if I kept singing, I was going to start crying. Mm. And uh, I felt like you got pretty emotional, too. Yeah, that I like before I even started the show, I I started to, say, you know, just say like, hey, thanks for everybody for coming. This is my first show back and that I that I missed it you know, I missed playing shows and like, I just started sobbing. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it just, I think I wasn't ready for, there's just that moment, like right before you play a show where you like take a deep breath and you kind of like, okay, here we go. And you, you like open your heart a little bit, you know, to where you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to expose myself and, and let, let this out, you know? Mm -hmm. And that moment where it, it opened up. I was, I just wasn't ready for that like rush of feelings of, you know, all the, the loss and pain and frustration and every, everything of the last year and a half pandemic and, um, and all the things that, you know, we couldn't do for so long and like feeling so grateful and thankful that we were finally being able to start to do them again. It was just, I was completely, shocked by that and it it yeah yeah so yeah it wasn't <laughs> i laugh about it now but like it wasn't just like a little like like oh oh i got choked up it was like tears like sobbing <laughs> from what yeah. i remember and uh yeah it was that was a heavy it, it was a heavy moment and i i thought after the show like if I could do that before every solo show, if I could just like muster that, just do like a fake cry, <laughs> like in front, of, just get, stand up in front of everybody and just sob for like a minute. I think people would just be on board, you know, the whole show. They'd be like, oh, I better pay attention. What's wrong with this person? <laughs> so, 
I, I don't know. I, th- I thought about trying to muster that at every show, but um, I think the truth is it was just real and it will only happen once. I thought it was a really amazing moment, especially in the moment watching you play and feeling so emotional about it. And then being like, this is all because of ska. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we'll leave you by saying... Ska now more than ever. Thank you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.